Welcome to Moving On Sideways. I hope you enjoyed the last episode, if you listened to it. Um, It was definitely very different than typical. And today, I am also going to do a very different episode. Today, the day that the podcast uh, gets released, um, is uh, All Saints Day, November 1st. And this year, it's uh, kind of special, well, special for multiple reasons. One is because it's 2020, and... Um, I don't know. It's, you know, it's like kind of like everything special, but especially the the whole idea of good and evil seems more pertinent this year than anything. And, you know, I, I would say with the U.S. presidential election coming up, that's also um, something that uh, I would consider a, an issue of good and evil, although obviously people think one side is good and other people think the other side is good. And same with the evil stuff. But, um, so for today's episode, I'm actually going to read a um, historic fiction account of Thomas uh, Beckett. Um, When I was in high school, I had to, well, we had to read the Canterbury Tales. And, you know, just like everything else in high school, it was done terribly. And, you know, it didn't stick with us much at all. Like, we didn't read much of them or anything. Um, And... And uh, but anyways, uh, because of that, I'm f- familiar with Thomas a uh, um, a Beckett or a Beckett. I don't know his middle initial was a. Um, but he was a uh, he was an English uh, archbishop, which is like the the leader of the English church um, in the end of the 12th century. And you know, back then the church was very very powerful. Um, so basically, he was uh, he was killed by people that were trying to please the king. Because the um, archbishop, the leader of the church in England, and the king were at ends with each other, at odds with each other, and they had a lot of uh, problems with each other. Um, so he was uh, soon afterward um, considered a saint, and people would go on pilgrimages in England, and I, I'm sure they still do, to uh, Canterbury. And I actually I looked it up in England, and it's like. Um, Southeastern England, so I don't know. It's kind of far for a lot of people that live in England, I guess. <laughs> um, so um, I have a. It's actually it's my gateway book for uh, Ken Follett, who's my favorite author. Um, the book is uh, Pillars of the Earth, and I read it about ten years ago, and I, I reread it um, over the last two months, um, and. I actually enjoyed it a lot more this time than I did the first time. Although I did like it a lot the first time. I just I just enjoyed it more this time, I guess. Um, but the end of the book, so, you know, if you want to read this book, this is arguably a spoiler, but not really. Because this, this book is like almost a thousand pages, and it's kind of like a collection of a bunch of stories. So that it's almost, impossi- almost impossible to have a um, spoiler. In fact, I would say the only spoiler... Is that you kind of find out who who who's still alive at the end of the book? Because another thing about this book is that it takes place over, um, I don't know, probably fifty years, something like that. So a little background: uh, the um, this this guy named William is like the basically the bad guy of the book, although there's multiple bad guys or whatever. And the book is good about you know not every side is like pure good and pure evil, but William's a pretty bad bad fellow. And, um, and one of the good guys of the book is, uh, Prior Philip. So the first half of what I'm going to read is from the perspective of William. And the second half is from the perspective of Philip. And this possibly will be a two part episode. 
Um, but yeah, we'll see. So basically, uh, a tiny bit more background. So the king actually did not actually condone this, um, uh, this murder, but they were trying to please the king. Um, and William, uh, had basically just agreed to do this. And at this point, he's a little bit older, but this, this William character, trust me, like, if you read this book, you would hate this William character, and you would want, you would want him to have, a, like, a horrible death. So, um, or, I mean, even if you're, like, super, super, let's see, what's the word, forgiving? You, you would just, I mean, if you were super, super, super forgiving, you would want him to become a hermit and live out the rest of his days in solitude. Because this guy, William, is just, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I was going to say pure evil, but then I thought about how my whole thing about uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, not, not all sides are totally good and all sides are totally bad, but whatever. Uh, I'm going to start reading the book. Um, I, hope, I hope this uh, sounds, sounds good. My goodness, my my phone. <laughs> yeah, this is not the perfect app, but it's it's pretty good. So, anyways, um, the enormity of what they were going to do hung over William like a thundercloud as a group of assassins traveled to England. Oh, and by the way, they they started off in Normandy, uh, in in uh, modern day France. Uh, back then, Normandy, which is um, northern France, um was actually part of the same country as England. And, you know, the actual country of France was next to Normandy, which was... Anyways, I probably shouldn't interject too much, but I'm going to interject a little bit. So, thunder, Thundercloud is the group of assassins traveled to England. He could, think of, he could think of nothing else. He could neither eat nor sleep. He acted confused and spoke distractedly. By the time the ship reached Dover, he was ready to abandon the project. They reached Saltwood Castle in Kent three days after Christmas on a Monday evening. The castle belonged to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but during the exile it had been occupied by Ranulf de Brock, who had refused to give it back. Indeed, one of Thomas's complaints to the Pope was that King Henry had failed to restore the castle to him. So, by, so once again, Thomas is the uh, Archbishop, and Henry or King Henry is the king, who these assassins are trying to please, but. Yeah. Um, Ranulf put new heart into William. Ranulf had ravaged Kent in the absence of the Archbishop, relishing the lack of authority rather in the way William had in years gone by. He was willing to do anything to retain the freedom to do as he pleased. He was enthusiastic about the assassination plan and welcomed the change of, of chance of, ta of taking part. <laughs> and he immediately began to discuss the details with gusto. I was laughing because I was just remembering, like, growing up and, you know, the whole popcorn reading thing. This, this could end up being like a very entertaining episode, but I think I'll do all right. Anyways, back to the book. His matter-of-fact approach dispelled the fog of superstitious dread that had clouded William's vision. William began once again to imagine how it would be um, if he were an earl again, with no one to tell him what to do. They stayed up most of the night planning the operation. Ranulf drew a plan of the cathedral close and the, archbishop's and the archbishop's palace, scratching it on the table with a knife. The monastic buildings were on the north side of the church, which was unusual. They were normally to the south, as at Kingsbridge. The archbishop's palace was, a was attached to the northwest corner of the church. It was entered from the kitchen courtyard. While they worked on the plan, Ranulf sent riders to his garrisons at Dover, Rochester, and Bletchingley ordering his knights to 
to meet him on the road to Canterbury in the morning. Toward dawn, the conspirators went to bed to catch an hour or two of sleep. William's legs hurt like fire after the long journey. He hoped this was the last military operation he would ever do. He would be 55 soon, if his calculations were right, and he was getting too old for it. Despite his weariness and the heartening influence of Renolf, he still could not sleep. The idea of killing an archbishop was too terrifying, even though he had already been absolved of his sin. He was afraid that if he went to sleep, he would have nightmares. They had figured out a good plan of attack. It would go wrong, of course. There was always something that went wrong. The important thing was was to be flexible enough to cope with the unexpected. But whatever happened, it would not be very difficult for a group of professional fighting men to overpower a handful of effeminate monks. The dim light of a gray winter morning leaked into the room through the arrow-slit windows. After a while, William got up. He tried to say his prayers, but he could not. The others were up early, too. They had breakfast together in the hall. As William, as well as William and Renolf, there were Reginald Fitzhertz, whom William had made leader of the tack group, Richard Lebret, the youngster of the group, William Tracy, the oldest, and Hugh Morville, the highest ranking. They put on their armor and set out on Renolf's horses. It was a bitterly cold day, and the sky was dark with low gray clouds, as if it might snow. They followed the old road called Stone Street. On the two-and-a-half-hour journey, they picked up several more nights. Their main rendezvous was at St. Augustine's Abbey, outside the city. The abbot was an old enemy of Thomas's, Renolf had assured William, but nevertheless, William decided to tell him that they had come to arrest Thomas, not to kill him. That was a pretense that would keep up until the last moment. No one had to know the true aim of the operation except for William himself, Renolf, and the four knights who had crossed from France. They reached the abbey at noon. The men Renolf had summoned were awaiting. The abbot gave them dinner. His wine was very good, and they, they all drank plenty. Renolf briefed the men-at-arms who would, who would surround the cathedral close and prevent anyone from escaping. William, William kept shivering, even when he, was, when he stood beside the fire in the guest house. It should be a simple operation, but the, but the penalty for failure would probably be death. The king would find a way to justify the murder of Thomas, but he could never support the attempted murder. He would have to deny all knowledge of it and hang the perpetrators. William had hanged many people as sheriff of Shiring, but the thought of his own body dangling at the end of a rope still made him shake. He turned his mind to the thought of the earldom he could expect as a reward for success. It would be nice to be an earl again in his old age, respected and deferred to and obeyed without question. Perhaps Alina's brother, Richard, would die in the Holy Land and King Henry would give William his old estates again. The thought warmed him more than, more than the fire. <laughs> more, more, more than the fire. <laughs> when, uh, when they left the abbey, they were a small army. Nevertheless, they had no trouble getting into Canterbury. Renolf had controlled this part of the country for six years, and he had not rel- relinquished his authority. He held more sway than Thomas, which was no doubt why Thomas had complained so bitterly to the Pope. As soon as they were inside. The men-at-arms men spread out around the cathedral close and blocked all the exits. The operation had begun. Until this moment, it had been theoretically possible to call the whole thing off, with no harm done. But now, William thought with a shiver of dread, the die was cast. 
He left Renolf in charge of the blockade, keeping a small group of knights and men for himself. He installed most of the knights in a house opposite the main gateway to the cathedral close. Then he went through the gate with the remainder. Reginald Fitzhertz and and the other three conspirators rode into the kitchen courtyard as if they were official visitors, rather than armed intruders. But William ran into the gatehouse and held the the terrified porter at sword point. The attack was underway. With his heart in his mouth, William ordered a man-at-arms to tie up the porter, then summoned the rest of his men into the gatehouse and closed the gate. Now no one could enter or leave. He had taken armed control of a monastery. He followed the four conspirators into the kitchen courtyard. There were stables to the north of the yard, but the four had tied their horses to a mulberry tree in the middle. They took off their sword belts and helmets. They would keep up the facade of a peaceful visit a little longer. William caught up with them and dropped his weapons under the tree. Reginald looked inquiringly at him. All's well, William said. The place is isolated. They crossed the courtyard to the... (laughs) I was just thinking, what if every time I said someone's quotes, I said, quote, the place is isolated, unquote. (laughs) That would be so annoying, but kind of humorous. Um, They crossed the courtyard to the palace and went into the porch. William assigned a local knight called Richard to stay in the porch on guard. The others entered the great hall. The palace servants were sitting down to dinner. They meant they had already served that meant they had already served Thomas and the priests and, and monks who were with him. One of the servants stood up. Reginald said, "We are the king's men." The room went quiet, but the servant who had stood up said, "Welcome, my lords. I'm the steward of the hall, William Fitzneil. Please come in. Would you like some dinner?" He was remarkably friendly, William thought, considering that his master was at loggerheads with the king. He could probably be suborned, which I... eh, whatever. No dinner, thank you, said Reginald. A cup of wine after your journey. We have a message for for your master from the king, Reginald said impatiently. Please announce us right away. Very good, the steward bowed. They were unarmed, so he had no reason to refuse them. He left the table and walked to the far end of the hall. William and the four knights followed. The eyes of the silent servants went with them. William was trembling the way he used to before a battle, and he wished the fighting would start, for he knew he would be all right then. They all went up the staircase to the upper floor. They emerged in a a roomy attendance chamber with benches around the sides. There was a large throne in the middle of the wall. Several black-robed priests and monks were sitting on the benches, but the throne was empty. The steward crossed the room to an open door. "'Messengers from the king, my lord archbishop,' he said in a loud voice. There was no audible reply, but the archbishop must have nodded, for the steward waved them in. The monks and priests stared wide-eyed as the knights marched across the room and went into the inner inner chamber. Thomas Beckett was sitting on the edge of, of the bed, dressed in his archbishop's robes. There was only one other person in the room, a monk, sitting at Thomas's feet, listening. William caught the monk's eye and was jolted to recognize Prior Philip of Kingsbridge. What was he doing here? Curving fa- currying favor, no doubt. Philip had, had been elected Bishop of Kingsbridge, but had not yet been confirmed. Now William thought, savagely, he never would be. Philip was equally startled to see William. However, Thomas carried on speaking, pretending not to notice the knights. This was a piece of calculated discourtesy, William thought. The knights, the knights sat down on the low stools and benches around the bed. 
William wished they had not. It made the visit seem social, and he felt they had lost impetus, impetus somehow. Perhaps that was what Thomas had intended. Finally, Thomas looked at them. He did not rise to greet them. He knew, he knew them all, except William, and his eye came to rest on Hugh Morville, the highest ranking. Ah, Hugh, he said. William had put Reginald in charge of this operation, this part of the operation, and so it was Reginald, not Hugh, who spoke to the archbishop. We come from the king in Normandy. Do you, do you want to hear his message in public or in private? Thomas looked irritably from Reginald to Hugh and back again, as if, as if he resented dealing with a junior member of the delegation. He sighed, then said, Leave me, Philip. Philip stood up and walked past the knights, looking worried. But don't close the door, Thomas called after him. When Philip had gone out, Reginald said, I require you in the name of the king to go to Winchester to answer charges against you. William had the satisfaction of seeing Thomas go pale. So that's how it is, the archbishop said quietly. He looked up. The steward was hovering at the door. Send everyone in, Thomas said to him. I want them all to hear this. The monks and priests filed in, prior Philip among them. Some sat down, and others stood around the walls. William had no objection. On the contrary, the more people who were present, the better. For the object of this unarmed encounter was to establish before witnesses that Thomas had refused to comply with a royal command. When they were all settled, Thomas looked at Reginald. Again, he said, I, I require you in the name of the king to go to Winchester to answer charges against you, Reginald repeated. What charges? Thomas said quietly. Treason. Thomas shook his head. I will not be put on trial by Henry, he said calmly. I've committed no crime. God knows. You've excommunicated royal servants. It was not I, but the Pope who did that. You've suspended other bishops. I've offered to reinstate them on merciful terms. They have refused. My offer remains open. You've threatened the succession of the throne by disparaging the coronation of the king's son. I did no such thing. The Archbishop of York has no right to crown anyone and the Pope has reprimanded him for his effrontery. But no one has suggested that the coronation is invalid. Reginald said exasperatedly, the, the, one thing, the one thing follows from the other, you damn fool. I've had enough, Thomas said. And we've had enough of you, Thomas Beckett, Reginald shouted. By God's wounds, we've had enough of you, and your arrogance, and troublemaking, and treason. Thomas stood up. The archbishop's castles are occupied by the king's men, he shouted. The archbishop's rents have been collected by the king. The archbishop has been ordered not to leave the city of Canterbury. And you tell me that you have had enough? One of the priests tried to intervene, saying to Thomas, My lord, let's discuss the matter in private. To what end? Thomas snapped. They demand something I must not do and will not do. The shouting had attracted everyone in the palace, and the doorway to the chamber was crowded with wide-eyed listeners, William saw. The argument had gone on long enough. Nobody could now deny that Thomas had refused a royal command. William made a signal to Reginald. It was a discreet gesture, but Prior Philip noticed it and raised his eyebrows in, su in surprise, realiz realizing that the leader of the group was not Reginald, but William. Reginald said formally, Archbishop Thomas, you are no longer under the king's peace and protection. He turned around and addressed the onlookers. Clear this room, he ordered. Nobody moved. Reginald said, you monks, I order you in the name of the king to guard, to guard the archbishop and prevent his escape. They would do no such thing, of course, nor did William want them to. On the contrary, he wanted Thomas to attempt an escape, for that would make it easier to kill him. 
Reginald turned to the steward, William Fitzneil, who was technically the archbishop's bodyguard. I arrest you, he said. He grabbed the steward's arm and marched him out of the room. The man did not resist. William and the other knights followed them out. They ran down the stairs and through the hall. The local knight, Richard, was still on guard in the, in the porch. William wondered what to do with the steward. He asked him, Are you with us? The man was terrified. He said, Yes, if you are with the king. He was too frightened to be in any danger, whatever side he was on, William decided. He said to Richard, Keep an eye on him. Let no one leave the building. Keep the porch door closed. With the others, he ran across the courtyard to the mulberry tree. Hastily, they began to put on their helmets and swords. We're going to do it now, William thought fearfully. We're going to, do, we're going to go back in there and kill the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh my God. It was a long time since William had worn a helmet and the fringe of chainmail that protected the neck and shoulders kept getting in the way. He cursed his clumsy fingers. He did not have time to fumble anything just now. He spotted a boy watching him open mouth and shouted to him, Hey, you, what's your name? The boy looked toward the kitchen, unsure whether to answer William or flee. Robert, Lord, he said after a moment. They call me Robert Pipe. Come here, Robert Pipe, and help me with this. The boy hesitated again. William's patience ran out. Come here, or I swear by the blood of Jesus, I'll chop off your hand and, with a sword. Reluctantly, the boy came forward. William showed him how to hold up the chainmail while he put on the helmet. He got it on at last, and Robert Pipe fled. He'll tell his grandchildren about this, William thought fleetingly. The helmet had a ventail, a mouth flap that could be pulled across the, and fastened with a strap. The, the others had closed, their, had closed theirs so that their faces were hidden and they could no longer be recognized. William left his open a moment longer. Each of them had a sword in one hand and an axe in the other. Ready? William said. They all nodded. There would be little talk from now on. No more orders were necessary. No further decisions had to be made. They were simply going to go back there and kill Thomas. William put two fingers in his mouth and gave a shrill whistle. Then he fastened his, vin his ventail. A man at arms came running out of the gatehouse and threw open the main gate. The king's... The knights William had stationed in the house across the road came, came out and poured into the courtyard, shouting as they had been instructed, King's men! King's men! William ran back to the palace. The, the knight Richard and the steward William Fitzneil threw open the porch door for him. As he entered, two of the archbishop's servants took advantage of the fact that Richard and William Fitzneil were distracted and slammed the door between the porch and the hall. William threw his weight against the door but he was too late. They had secured it with a bar. He cursed. A setback, and so soon. The knights began to hack at the door with their axes, but they made little headway. It had been made, uh, it had been made to withstand attack. William felt control slipping away from him. Fighting back, the, fighting back the beginnings of a panic, he ran out of the porch and looked around for another door. Reginald went with him. There was nothing on this side of the building. They ran around the west end of the palace, past the, de the detached kitchen, into the orchard on the south side. William grunted with satisfaction. There on the south wall of the palace was a staircase leading to the upper floor. It looked like a private entrance to the archbishop's chambers. The feeling of panic went away. William and Reginald ran to the foot of the staircase. It was damaged halfway up, and there were a few workmen's tools and a ladder nearby as if the stairs were being repaired. Reginald leaned, 
the ladder against the side of the staircase and climbed up, bypassing the broken steps. He reached the top. There was a door leading to an oriel, a little enclosed balcony. William watched him try the door. It was locked. Beside it was a shuttered window. Reginald smashed the shutter with, smashed the shutter with one blow of his axe. He reached inside, fumbled, then opened the door and went in. William started to climb the ladder. Now the next part is from Prior Phillips' perspective. By the way, if you've never heard of uh, um, Ken Follett, he's an author. That's pretty much his style. He does uh, most of his books. He does um, little, you know, piece like that by one person's perspective, and then another piece by another person's perspective. And uh, a lot of times, there's like about roughly five main characters, and um, usually one is bad guy, or maybe one or sometimes it's a lot more than five. But I think five's a good number because. Too much can be confusing a little bit. Huh. Anyways. <laughs> so, now for Philip's part. <sighs> Philip was scared from the moment he saw William Han Hamley, but the priest and monks in Thomas's entourage were at first uh, com complacent. Then, when they heard the hammering on the, front, on the hall door, they became frightened, and several of them proposed taking refuge in the cathedral. Thomas was scornful. Take refuge, he said. From what? Those knights? An archbishop can't run from a few hotheads. Philip thought he was right, up to a point. The title of archbishop was meaningless if you could be frightened by knights. The man of God, securing the knowledge that his sins are forgiven, regards death as a happy transfer to a better place. It has no, no fear of swords. However, even an archbishop ought not to be so careless of his safety as to invite attack. Furthermore, Philip had first-hand knowledge of the viciousness and brutality of William Hamley. So when they heard the smashing of the Oriel shutter, Philip decided to take a lead. He could see through the windows that the palace was surrounded by knights. The sight of them scared him more. This was clearly a carefully planned attack, and the perpetrators were, were prepared to commit violence. He hastily closed the bedroom door and pulled the bar, bar across. The others watched him, watched him, content to let someone decisive take charge. Archbishop Thomas continued to look scornful, but he did not try to stop Philip. Philip stood by the door and listened. He heard a man come through the oriel and enter the audience chamber. He wondered how strong the bedroom door was. However, the man did not attack the door, but crossed the audience chamber and, start, and started down the stairs. Philip guessed he was going to, to open the hall door from the inside and let the rest of the knights in that way. That gave Thomas a few moments reprieve. There was another door in the in the opposite corner of the bedroom, partly concealed by the bed. Philip pointed to it and said urgently, Where does that lead? To the cloisters, someone said, but it's locked shut. Philip crossed the room and tried the door. It was locked. Have you got a key? He said to Thomas, adding as an afterthought, My lord, Archbishop. Thomas shook his head. That passage has never been used in my memory, he said with infuriating calm. <clears throat> the door did, did not look very stout. But Philip was 63 years old, and brute force had never been his metier. He stood back and gave the door a kick. It hurt his foot. The door rattled flimsily. Philip gritted his teeth and kicked it harder. It flew open. Philip looked at Thomas. Thomas still seemed reluctant to flee. Perhaps it had not dawned on him, as it had on Philip, that the number of knights and the well-organized nature of their operation indicated a deadly serious intention to do him harm. But Philip knew instinctively that it would be fruitless to try to scare Thomas into fleeing. Instead, he said, 
It's time for Vespers. We ought, we ought not to let a few hotheads disrupt the routine of worship. Thomas smiled, seeing that his own argument had been used against him. Very well, he said, and he got to his feet. Philip led the way, feeling relief that he had got Thomas moving and fear, and fear that the archbishop still might not move fast enough. This passage, passage led down a long flight of steps. There was no light except what came through the archbishop's bedroom. At the end of the passage was another door. Philip gave it, to the same, tr- gave it the same treatment as he had given the first door, but this one was stronger and it did not open. He began to hammer on it, shouting, Help! Open the door! Hurry! Hurry! He heard the note of panic in his own voice and made an effort to stay calm, but his heart was racing and he knew that William's knights must be close behind. The others caught up with him. He continued to bang the, bang the door and shout. He heard Thomas say, Dignity, Philip, please! But he took no notice. He wanted to preserve the archbishop's dignity. His own was of no account. Before Thomas could protest again, there was the sound of a bar being drawn and the key turning in the lock, and the door was opened. Philip grunted with relief. Two startled settlers startled uh, stood there. One said, I didn't know there, this door led anywhere. Philip pushed past them impatiently. He found himself in the cellar's stores. He negotiated the barrels and sacks to reach another door and passed through, through that into the open air. It was getting dark. He was in the south walk of the cloisters. At the far end of the walk, he saw, to his immense relief, the door that led into the north transept of, of Canterbury Cathedral. They were almost safe. He had, he had to get Thomas into the cathedral before William and his knights could catch up. The rest of the party emerged from the stores. Philip said, Into the church, quickly, Thomas said. No, Philip, not quickly. We will enter my cathedral with dignity. Philip wanted to scream, but he said, Of course, my lord. He could hear the ominous sound of, his, of heavy feet in the disused passage. The knights had broken into the bedroom and had found the, the, bolt, the bolt hole. <laughs> he knew the archbishop's best protection was his dignity, but there was no harm in getting out of the way of trouble. Where is the archbishop's cross? Thomas said. I can't enter the church without my cross. Philip groaned in despair. Then one of the priests said, I brought the cross. Here it is. Thomas said, Carry it before me in the usual way, please. The priest held it up and walked, in, walked with restrained haste toward the open toward the church door. Thomas followed him. The archbishop's entourage preceded him into the cathedral, as etiquette demanded. Philip went last and, and held, his door for, held the door for him. Just as Thomas entered, two knights burst out of the cellar's stores and sprinted down the south walk. Philip closed the transept door. There was a bar located in, the, in a hole in the wall beside the door, doorpost. Philip grabbed the bar and pulled it across the door. He turned around, sagging with relief, and leaned back against the door. Thomas was crossing the narrow transept towards, towards the steps that led up to the north aisle of the chancel. When he heard the bar slam into, into place, he stopped suddenly and turned around. No, Philip, he said. Philip's heart sank. My lord archbishop, this is a church, not a castle. Unbar the door. A door shook violently as the knights tried to open it. Philip said, I'm afraid they want to kill you. Then they will probably, probably succeed, whether you bar the door or not. Do you know how many other doors there are to this church? Open it. There was a series of loud banes, as if, as if the knights were attacking the door with axes. You could hide, Philip said desperately. There are dozens of places. The entrance to the crypt is just there. It's getting dark. Hide, 
Philip, in my own church, would you? Philip stared at Thomas for a long moment. At last, he said, No, I wouldn't. Open the door. With a heavy heart, Philip slid back the bar. The knights burst in. There were five of them. Their faces were hidden behind helmets. They carried swords and axes. They looked like emissaries from hell. Philip knew he should not be afraid, but the sharp edges of their weapons made him shiver with fear. One of them shouted, Where is Thomas Beckett, a traitor to the king and to the kingdom? The other shouted, Where is the traitor? Where is the archbishop? It was quite dark now, and the big church was only dimly lit by candles. All the monks were in black, and the knight's vision was somewhat limited by their, fire pl- fi- by their face plates. Philip had a sudden surge of hope. Perhaps they would miss Thomas in the darkness, but Thomas immediately dashed that hope by walking down the steps toward the knight, saying, Here I am, no traitor to the king, but a priest of God. What do you want? As the archbishop stood confronting the five men with their drawn swords, Philip suddenly knew with certainty that Thomas was going to die here today. The people in the archbishop's entourage must have had the same feeling, for suddenly most of them fled. Some disappeared into the gloom of the chancel, a few scattered into the nave among the townspeople waiting for the service, and one opened a small door and ran up a spiral staircase. Philip was disgusted. You should pray, not run, he shouted after them. It occurred to Philip that he, too, might be killed if he did not run, but he could not tear himself away from the side of the archbishop. One of the knights said to Thomas, Renounce your treachery. Philip, rec- uh, Philip recognized the voice of Reginald Fritz who had done the talking earlier. I have nothing to renounce, Thomas replied. I have committed no treachery. He was deadly calm, but his face was white, and Philip realized that Thomas, like everyone else, had realized that he was going to die. Reginald shouted at Thomas, Run away! You're a dead man! Thomas stood still. They want, to kill, they want him to run, Philip thought. They can't bring themselves to kill him in cold blood. Perhaps Thomas understood that too, for he stood unflinching in front of them, defying them to touch him. For a long, uh, for, for a long moment, they were all frozen in a murderous tableau. The knights unwilling to make the first move. The priest too, too proud to, uh, the priest too proud to run. It was Thomas who fatally broke the spell. He said, "I'm ready to die, but you are." are not to touch any of my men, priests, or monks, or laymen. Reginald moved first. He waved his sword at Thomas, pushing its point closer and closer to his face, as if daring himself to let the blade touch the priest. Thomas stood like stone, his eyes focused on the knight, not the sword. Suddenly, with a quick twist of the wrist, Reginald knocked Thomas's cap off. Philip was suddenly filled with hope again. They can't bring themselves to do it, he thought. They're afraid to touch him. But he was wrong. The knight's resolution seemed to be strengthened by the silly gesture of knocking off the archbishop's cap, as if, perhaps, they had half expected to be struck down by the hand of God, and the fact that they had got away with it gave them courage to do worse. Reginald said, Carry him out, carry him out of here. The other knights sheathed their swords and approached the archbishop. One of them grasped Thomas, Thomas about the waist and tried to lift him. Philip despaired. They had touched him at last. They were, after all, willing to lay hands on a man of God. Philip had a stomach-lurching sense of the depths of their evil, like looking over the edge of a bottomless pit. They must know in their hearts that they would go to hell for this, yet still they did it. Thomas lost his balance, fled his arms, and began to struggle. 
The other knights joined in and trying to lift him and carry him. The, the only people left from Thomas's entourage were Philip and a priest called Edward Grimm. They both rushed forward to help Thomas. Edward grabbed Thomas's mantle and clung on tight. One of the knights turned and lashed out at Philip with a mailed fist. The blow struck the side of Philip's head, and he went down, dazed. When he, when he recovered, the knights had released Thomas, who was standing with his head bowed and his hands together in an attitude of prayer. One of the knights raised his sword. Philip, still on the floor, gave a long, helpless yell of protest. No! I'm going to stop it there, and I'm going to um, do a part two, which is kind of crazy because this is a weird podcast where I'm not really talking that much. Um, or I <laughs> obviously I'm talking a lot, but I'm not really talking about the subject or myself or anything, just reading a book kind of, but yeah, that's going to be where we're going to stop. And I'm actually going to re- record the rest of it on a different day. Um, so maybe that will, I don't know, maybe my voice will sound different. Maybe it won't, but yeah, this is uh moving on sideways. <laughs>